This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 19th, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, staff news writer John Cohen talks about the open questions around COVID-19 vaccines, like do they cut down on the transmission of the virus? Then I talk with researcher Anders Johansson about a new theory on the formation of terrestrial planets. How did rocky planets like Earth and Mars come to be at the very beginning of the solar system? First up this week, we have staff writer John Cohen, and we're going to talk about the state of coronavirus vaccines and some of the most pressing questions surrounding them. Hi, John. Hey, how are you, Sarah? Good. So it's my understanding that you're on your way to being fully vaccinated. What's that like? Yeah, I'm, uh, let's see, what day is today? I think I'm six days in, mm -hmm. so I don't have any immunity yet from the vaccine, but I'm really excited and starting to feel like, hey, there's a new world out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be clear that you got the vaccine because you're volunteering at a vaccine center, at a vaccination center. Uh, you're actually under the eligible age. Uh, in a lot of places, it's 65 and older. But a lot of this limitation on who can get the vaccine is coming from lack of supply. Do you see the supply increasing a lot anytime soon in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world? Well, it certainly has increased in the U.S. by more than 25 percent over the past few weeks. And as you vaccinate a portion of your society, 15, 20, 30 percent, there's more supply for other people because you've immunized a, a chunk of the population. Around the world, supply still is a crisis. 130 countries, according to the World Health Organization, have yet to vaccinate a single person. And I had, very sadly, two doctors I, I knew very well died in Zimbabwe a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, in the United States, we've vaccinated basically all healthcare workers. Yeah, that's terrible. And we should definitely talk more about inequalities around the vaccine as we go. 
But for now, let's get into some specifics of how vaccines are working. One of the big questions out there is, will these vaccines stop transmission of the virus? Yeah, well, it's a difficult question to answer. The clinical trials were, by and large, asking the simplest question, can vaccines prevent people from developing any disease? For the most part, that means mild COVID-19. Severe COVID-19 is a rare event, but mild is pretty common. Many people are asymptomatic. In order to pick up asymptomatic infections, you have to do nasal swabs routinely on people, which is really laborious and costly. So vaccine studies did sub-studies, some of them did, but for the most part, they were simply trying to answer the question, do we prevent mild, moderate, severe disease, hospitalization, and death? To assess transmission itself, ideally, you would have a massive contact tracing going on or a closed environment like a cruise ship or a household where people didn't leave. That's a tall order. And furthermore, you have to do loads and loads of nasal swabbing to look at transmission in that setting. There is a proposed transmission study in U.S. colleges that plans to vaccinate one group of kids before the other. Ethically, you can do that because none of the kids are eligible for vaccines. Because they can be in a relatively closed environment on a campus, if you live in the dorms, let's say, you can do pretty good contact tracing and you can do pretty good transmission analysis. So I think we will get the answer. I feel like this is information that I want as a person who wants to hang out with people who are vaccinated or eventually when I'm vaccinated. But from a public health perspective, if people aren't going into hospitals and dying of COVID, does whether or not transmission is stopped, does that become less important? Yeah, I think we've somewhat been over excited about the early efficacy data from Pfizer and Moderna. They showed us 95 and 94 percent efficacy against mild disease. You know, fantastic news. But they created this impression that, wow, it's going to go poof as soon as enough people get the vaccine. The reality is that those vaccines were tested during a time when the variants we now see in South Africa and the United Kingdom weren't widely spread. And the variant in South Africa, we know, gets around the vaccine a good portion of the time. And we also know that the variant in South Africa doesn't seem to have an impact on severe disease and death that's prevented by vaccines, which is great news. The vaccines still work even though mild disease becomes far more common. At the end of the day, does it matter? I mean, if we have COVID-19 that causes coughing for three days and fever and headache, yeah, it's not great, but we wouldn't stop the world for that. We stopped the world because this was killing people and overwhelming ICUs and putting people on ventilators, which is horrific. I mean, I've seen it firsthand and separating people from their families. That's what we're really doing here. We're trying to get out of that rut. Does this mean that herd immunity is not a thing? Herd immunity is a thing. It may not be something we achieve, and it may not be something we need in order to get back to what we consider to be normal. I mean, look, 40 to 60,000 people a year in the United States alone die from influenza every year. Tens of millions of people get infected with the influenza virus. We have a vaccine that prevents severe disease and death to some degree, and we function as a society. 
I don't know that we want to accept that COVID-19 is going to kill 40 to 60,000 Americans a year on top of influenza, but we have to start thinking that way. We learned to tolerate influenza and live with it, and we hope for better treatments, we hope for better vaccines, we work on those things, and I think that's where we're heading with this. But could we still eliminate the virus from circulation? Is it a possibility using vaccines and social distancing, all these other measures? Well, I mean, let's work through the math. China is a huge country. They have extremely low case numbers of COVID. They have a total of 100,000. We've had 450,000 people die. China shut it down a couple months after it surfaced, and now they have sporadic outbreaks. Why do they have sporadic outbreaks? Because people travel. People come into China. What that tells us is unless every country in the world contains the virus completely, the virus is a threat to everyone for as far as I can see. Can every country in the world contain the virus 100%? Yes, it can be done. We did that with smallpox. It was an enormous effort, and it took years. Could we get to a point where we have a similar program to stamp this virus out? Yes, we could. It probably would replicate what happened with smallpox, where we had teams go out every time there was a single case and do ring vaccination and flood the community around that single case with vaccination. So we can do it. Humans can do it. Science has proven that it can be done, but it's a very big task. Are we going to get there? I don't know. I hope so. It'd be great, but I'm not setting my expectations there. I'm setting my expectations at unclogging our ICUs, at preventing people from needing hospitalization from disease and living with some disease that isn't that catastrophic. And we can get there with vaccination. We're getting there. Sarah, that's what's amazing. So Israel is really a harbinger. Right. Yeah. They're already at, what, 40 percent? Yeah, they're maybe higher. I haven't looked today, but it's a small country. It's no nine million people. It's got four HMOs that basically everyone belongs to. It has electronic medical records. There have been disparities with the Palestinian population. I don't want to overlook that. But their aggressive purchase and distribution of vaccine has already shown indicators of decreases in hospitalizations and in cases. So it happens quickly. And what we've done in the United States is we targeted residents and nursing facilities as being right next to healthcare workers as a top priority. Those people are accounting for 38% of the deaths of COVID. That means they're clogging up ICUs as well. We've already protected them. We're there. So I think we're going to see that benefit. I think it's happening right now. What about waning immunity? The idea that vaccines may only last a certain amount of time. Are we going to need to go and revaccinate everyone? Immunity wanes. We have boosters for many vaccines. You go get a booster for tetanus, pertussis. Right now, the best studies I've seen have shown that people who are naturally infected eight months later have really robust immune responses still. There's no reason to think a vaccine would be worse than natural immunity. It might be, might be better. You also have to factor in that when you're in an environment where there's circulating virus and you are fully immunized, you're getting boosted by that circulating virus, which is going to impact the durability of your immunity. So running into someone with COVID, if you're vaccinated already, could give you a little boost, a little immune boost. 
But John, what will researchers, public health officials be watching out for as these vaccines roll out even more broadly? Certainly, we're going to always keep a close eye on side effects. As you roll out a vaccine from 100 million to a billion people, things may surface that we don't see right now. And that's critically important. We might see differences between the vaccines that go into wide-scale use. Some of them might work better than other vaccines. It might also help to mix and match vaccines to get a better immune response or a more durable immune response. We might also find that some vaccines work against some mutants better than other vaccines. And the variance in circulation may well determine the vaccines we use. That's what we do with influenza every year. We strain change. We look at the virus in the United States that's in the Southern Hemisphere, and we put that into our vaccines because we know it's going to circulate to the North. We will start to see patterns like that, I suspect. What about this idea of uh, correlates of response? Is that going to be important going forward? It's a critically important question. So the correlates of protection, to put it into plain English, are the immune responses that account for the protection. Many people reduce this to antibodies. Antibodies are one part of our immune response. There are different kinds of antibodies. The superstars of the antibody world are neutralizing antibodies. Those are ones that latch on to the surface protein of the virus spike and prevent it from infecting cells. Other antibodies latch onto the virus in places that don't neutralize it. They still allow infection to occur. Those are called binding antibodies. They're antibodies that are mucosal antibodies. That's a whole other type of antibody that would be great here because those antibodies would work in your nose. That's the virus's favorite place to live, right? That's where it does its business. Then on top of that, we have T-cell immunity. Antibodies don't always prevent infection. And so we have a whole nother system that does the cleanup job and says, okay, there's an infected cell. I got to get rid of it. And it targets the bad cells, the infected cells, and eliminates them. That's what T-cell immunity does. Do we know which one of these are raised in response to? Well, all of them are. What are we going to look for? What are the... The real bottom line is you want to figure out whether levels of any one of these or any three of these or any five of these tell you what creates protection. If you know that, then you don't have to run a human trial necessarily of a new vaccine. You can say, hey, I put it into animals and did all this, or I put it into a human. You got these kind of cells, you got these kind of antibodies. That's what we're looking for. You made, I'm going to make up some figure, 100 microliters of this neutralizing antibody. And that's what protection is. Okay, I got it out of this vaccine when I put it into a human. I don't have to put it into 40,000 people and have a placebo-controlled study. I can bridge. So that bridging allows you to update a vaccine. Let's say you want to throw in a new strain, like a cassette deck where you're changing the cassette. Well, the same idea holds true for vaccines, and we see that with influenza. We pop out the old strain, put in the new one. That's where we may well need to go with COVID-19 vaccines. And if we know the correlates of protection, we can more easily evaluate whether that newfangled preparation does what we need it to do. I personally feel better after talking with you about how these vaccines are going to work in the face of the variants and with the transmission question kind of put to the side. I feel some hope here, but taking into consideration what we've talked about with respect to inequalities and access worldwide, do you see 2021 as much different than 2020? 
2021 for the parts of the world that can access vaccine is going to be a great year. For the parts of the world that cannot, there's a tragedy unfolding. And I don't want to see what happened with HIV AIDS, which I witnessed firsthand happen here. Good drugs came out for HIV AIDS in 1996. And I traveled around the world to more than 50 countries over the next 10 years and watched people die from AIDS who couldn't access the medicines. That was horrific. Do you see this as a political problem at this point? Because the patents are held by certain companies and people could be making generics in other parts of the world for these vaccines? I don't think that's the central problem right now. Of course, it would help if everything was freely available. That would help. But it's not really a question of money right now. The COVAX facility has been set up by the World Health Organization in collaboration with Gavi and CEPI, a group that's set up to respond to pandemics with vaccines to get vaccines to poor people all around the world as quickly as possible and to raise money from wealthy countries to help purchase supplies. The critical issue is supply right now. There just isn't enough to go around. The doses aren't there. And until we get to the point where there's an abundance of product, we're stuck. And poor countries are, we already have seen it. As I mentioned to you what happened in Zimbabwe, that's happening in other places where even the top priority people, the healthcare workers, can't yet access vaccine. That's where we have to do better. So I'm hugely optimistic about places that can access vaccines and the change that will occur in those societies. And I'm hugely pessimistic based on what I've seen in the past about the world's ability to care for the world. We have to do better. Okay, John, thank you so much. You bet. John Cohen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to his story and all of our coronavirus coverage at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Did our planet form through the collisions of ever larger protoplanets or the gentle gathering of pebbles? Stay tuned for my interview with planetary scientist Anders Johansson to find out the latest theory. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This week in Science Advances, Anders Johansson and colleagues published a paper on a different way to form terrestrial planets by building up more and more pebbles instead of colliding ever larger protoplanets. Anders Johansson, professor of planetary sciences and planet formation at the University of Copenhagen, is here to talk about the work. Hi, Anders. Hello. Okay, so take us back to the beginning of the solar system. The young sun is surrounded by a big disk of gas, dust, and pebbles. How do these pebbles get together and make a planet? Yeah, so now we are four and a half billion years ago, and the young sun is surrounded by a lot of gas and a lot of dust, and then a lot of pebbles that are sort of between millimeter and centimeter sizes. We are in a time where we need to form the Earth. We think that the Earth actually formed as these pebbles uh, came together to form a planetesimal, sort of like an asteroid. 
maybe 100 kilometers in size. And then it grew and grew and grew. And then within 5 million years, we had formed the entire planet Earth just from accreting pebbles. What is the evidence that pebbles got together to form the planet? Well, it's actually a fairly new theory because people have traditionally thought that the Earth formed by a lot of asteroids colliding together to form the Earth and that maybe took 50 million years, even 100 million years. But in this uh, new model, we actually were inspired by studies of uh, meteorites. Meteorites are fragments of asteroids that land on the Earth. If you look inside a meteorite, you actually find little millimeter-sized pieces of rock in there. And we think that these are the pebbles that formed the Earth four and a half billion years ago. Do they match up with some of the properties of what Earth is made of? They actually don't. And that's really interesting because there are sort of two kinds of isotopic composition. So one can look at the different elements and see how many there are of each of the isotopes of these elements. And it turns out that if you look at the meteorites, there are two groups of meteorites that have two different isotopic fingerprints. And what's really interesting is that if you look at Earth, it doesn't fit with any of these groups. It sort of sits in between. And that's why we think that the Earth formed from a little bit of one group and a little bit from the other group. But if you cut open Earth, you're not going to see just pebbles. How do you say, well, this is a better theory than these protoplanet collisions? You know, how do you say, oh, it's much more likely that it's pebble after pebble than it is collision after collision? Right. Okay. So the main argument would be the following. that, As I said, we have the two kinds of isotopic composition that we find in the meteorites. We have one kind that looks like the inner part of the solar system. This is sort of what the meteorites from asteroids that come from the inner part of the solar system uh, have inside. And we have one part that comes from the outer part of the solar system. Now, it turns out that if you look at the Earth, you can match the Earth by having approximately 40% of the mass from what is from the inner part of the solar system. And then 60% of the mass must come from the outer edges of the solar system. So basically from the regions where comets form, where the Kuiper belt is today. And this we take as evidence that these pebbles were drifting through the protoplanetary disk, and then they were arriving in the inner solar system up for maybe four, three, four million years. Then the material that came in from the outer solar system went through the region where the Earth formed, and then the Earth accreted a significant amount of its mass from these slowly drifting pebbles. You see that as more likely as a rogue giant body coming from the outer solar system and then hitting one on the inner solar system. Right, because we're talking 60%. And one problem uh, with the other model where the Earth formed by giant impacts is that if you would bring 60% of the mass in by a body from the outer solar system, that would maybe contain 30-40% ice, which is water. And then we end up with an Earth that would have maybe 10, 20, 30% water. Now, you may think, well, the Earth has 70% water. Yes, but that's at the surface. If you measure all of the water inside of Earth, you arrive more than something like 0.1%. So the Earth is actually very, very dry. Isn't this similar to how we think that the gas giants formed based on pebbles rather than collisions? That's sort of where the pebble accretion theory was first developed, that it's necessary to form the cores of the gas giants very fast because these uh, disks of gas and dust that exist around young stars, they only live for a few million years, maybe three, four, five million years. So we've got to form a 10 Earth mass core of Jupiter in the same way as we formed the Earth, and then Jupiter can start to accrete gas and become a gas giant. So that's where the pebble accretion theory was developed originally. But now in this new paper, we applied for the first time to the terrestrial planets, and we think now that we have good evidence that they also formed by pebble accretion. We're talking about the terrestrial planets now, but in the paper you suggest maybe Mercury is a separate case? 
Mercury is very special. It's consisting almost entirely out of a metal core and is orbiting very close to the host star. So we think that Mercury formed in a different way that involved very high temperature processes, processes by which iron would be the preferred mineral to condense and, and form this uh, core of the Mercury. So we think there are other processes at play in forming Mercury. And that it was also really fast, faster than the other planets? Yeah. It's very close to the sun, and that also means that the accretion rate becomes very high. If we take our model and we assume that we form the Earth where Mercury is now, then it will grow very fast, up to five, six, seven, eight Earth masses, then it becomes a super-Earth instead. So we think maybe there's something different going on closer to the sun. Maybe there wasn't so much gas, maybe there wasn't so much pebbles anymore, it was very hot. So we think that Mercury formed very fast in a very hot environment where it was mainly made out of iron. And then maybe it got a very eccentric orbit, so it couldn't accrete anymore. And then it got sort of stuck there as a small terrestrial planet, while the other terrestrial planets were growing bigger further out. Does pebble accretion explain some of the differences between the terrestrial planets that we're talking about, Mars, Venus, and Earth? Right, because one thing that intrigued me when I started looking at terrestrial planets was the fact that Earth and Venus are the most massive of the terrestrial planets, and they're closer to the sun. And Mars is only 0.1 Earth masses and is further away from the sun. And this looks exactly like what we have looked at for pebble accretion for, for giant planets, that the planets are growing and they're small. And as they grow larger and larger, they start to migrate towards the sun. And this means that the bigger planets are closer to the sun and the smaller planets further away. And then I tried to apply this model then to the inner solar system. And I said, what if all the terrestrial planets started at 1.6 AU? Astronomical units is the distance from the Earth to the sun. So they're all in the same distance from the sun. Exactly. So we assume that where Mars is, that's where they all started. And then there were a lot of planetesimals forming. They were colliding with each other. They were affecting each other with gravity. And the ones that happened to be a little bit larger, be a little bit larger early on, accrete a little bit more other planetesimals, then they start to be able to create pebbles very fast. They grow and they migrate out of this birth ring. And then we think that Mars is sort of the last one to be about to come out of the birth ring. And then there was no more material and the disk ended its lifetime. And then Mars got stuck at the point one Earth masses. I like that you call it the birth ring. That's great. <laughs> so you're not saying that there were no collisions. You're saying that pebbles were the primary method of building these planets up. There's an important difference between my experience with working with gas giants and then terrestrial planets. Gas giants are so far from the star that planetesimals, once they form, they don't really collide much. They can really only grow by creating pebbles. In the inner solar system, the collision timescales are much, much shorter, and there will be a lot of collisions. There will be collisions between planetesimals. There will also be giant impacts. We've also done some in-body simulations that we will publish this year. They actually show that there will be a lot of giant impacts between bodies that are maybe one Earth mass or two Earth masses or one half Earth mass. We could show that in this case, the pebble accretion was still the dominant process. Can we look at planets around other stars and either say, oh, this happened there, or this is a better fit for our solar system and their solar system? Is there any support we can look for outside of where we live? That's a really good question. And the problem now is that we can't really observe these small planets like Earth and Mars so well yet. That would change in the next five years, next 10 years. Right now, what is mainly observed are small planets are what we call super-Earth. So they're typically between two and 10 times the mass of the Earth. It actually looks like they may also have formed by pebble accretion, because if you look at the super-Earth, they are more massive. They are closer to the star. That fits with my picture of the more massive you are, the more you migrate it. They have hydrogen and helium in their envelope, typically means that they fall fast to accrete gas from the protoplanetary disk. 
And there are sometimes in resonances where pairs of super Earth are orbiting with uh, integer ratios of their orbital times. And this is also sort of a telltale sign that they migrated together in this kind of resonant way. I guess I want to reinforce that this changes what we think about where the planets formed and how long it took. Is that right? It changes the view of how long it took. Traditionally, terrestrial planet formation has been considered to take 30, 50, 100 million years. It also changes, I would say, our view of the volatile delivery, that in the classical picture, the Earth gets into water and its carbon and so on, with a few collisions from asteroids that fall far away from the sun. And this is very random then. So the Earth could basically have had no water or could have been, could have been covered by 100 kilometers of water instead of 10 kilometers. Whereas in this pebble accretion model, where it's the pebble snow that delivers the water and the carbon, is always the same amount. And it doesn't matter whether you're small or big. It's always the first 1% of the planet that accretes all of the water and all of the carbon, and the remaining accretion is always dry. So for me, this also means that it's not so random how much water you're going to get. It's more set by the composition of the pebbles. And I think that this may be good news for life on planets around other stars, because if you had a lot less water, there wouldn't be enough really to have a biosphere. And if you had a lot more water, well, then you'll be an ocean planet, and it may not be so easy to develop a civilization for example. So this may show that uh, the planets like Earth are actually very common in the universe. Very interesting. And that is a good way to think about how we could prove or disprove this once we get a look at those smaller planets that are hard to see around other stars. Yes, absolutely. Of course, we're looking forward to the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, and the ELT, the Extremely Large Telescope, and they will start to produce data in the next years. And then we will hopefully understand the atmospheres of small planets around other stars. One can see how much water vapor is in them, maybe. And then we can maybe compare this to the theory and, and say, well, we are predicting there will be the same amount of water in all of these planets. And of course, if there's a lot more water, then we have to go back to the drawing board and modify the theories again. Thanks so much, Anders. Well, thanks for contacting me. Thanks for all the nice questions. Anders Johansson is a professor of planetary sciences and planet formation at the University of Copenhagen. You can find a link to his Science Advances paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. Transcripts are by Scribby. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. 
Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.